You're listening to the Park Slope Community Church Podcast. To learn more about Park Slope Community Church, visit us online at parkslope.church. We are in the middle of a series that we have called Joy for Cynics. And we are looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in the first century. And what is unique about this letter is that it is the Apostle Paul's most upbeat his most joyful, his most happy, his most cheerful letter that we have in all of the New Testament, but he's writing it from some of the most difficult circumstances imaginable. Paul is writing this letter that we call Philippians in a Roman prison. He's likely chained to two guards and he's awaiting his probable execution, yet he is writing with extraordinary joy. How can that be? In our current cultural moment, this is an important question for us to ask. Given the realities of the year that we are all living in, 2020, we've dealt with issues of public health and sickness, and we've dealt with death. We've um, dealt with issues of race and politics and economics, and many of us have grown cynical. We look at the world around us at the moment and it confirms what our inner cynic has been saying all along. The world is broken. People lie and cheat. People are out for themselves. And joyful people, hopeful people, happy people are just naive. So is there real joy for cynics like us. This morning, we're going to continue our series by looking at how the Apostle Paul viewed his own trials, his own disappointments, and his own afflictions. How did he view the circumstance that he was in? So we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Philippians 1, 12 through 18. Here's what Paul says from a Roman prison in the first century. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, okay, this whole circumstance that I'm in, my chains, my imprisonment, my whole circumstance, all that has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." As I've said last week, our inner cynic claims that we are just realists, right? That we see the world as it really is. But what we see in Paul in this letter and specifically in this passage is that Paul himself is a realist. He never tries to sweep pain or suffering or affliction under the rug, but he wants to face it head on. But he was able to experience joy in his circumstance because he was able to step back and see the bigger story around him. He was able to put his story 
Apostle Paul in a Roman prison in the first century in the context of a larger story that God has been writing from the beginning of history. So in a trial, our inner cynic says, this is just how the world is, I told you so. But what Paul is going to say, that perhaps the view of our inner cynic is too narrow. That if we were just to zoom out for a moment from our trial, from our circumstances, we might see a bigger narrative at play. There's this old fable that describes three workers. And these workers are um, day in and day out, they're cutting stones and they're carrying these large stones in a, in a major construction project. And it was back-breaking work. It was not a fun job to have. And one day somebody walks by and he, they ask each of the men what they're doing. And the first man says, oh, I'm just getting by. The second man say, man, I'm just trying to put food on the table for my family. The third man, the only one with a smile on his face, looks up and the man says, what are you doing? And he says, sir, I am building a cathedral. They each had the same burden to bear. They were each carrying the same weight. But the third man, the only one who had joy, he was able to connect what he was doing in the moment, what he was going through in his circumstance to a larger project that was happening around him. Hey, I'm not just getting by. I'm not just putting food on my, on my table. I'm a part of something bigger, something beyond me. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here in this passage. He's saying, hey, if you would just let me explain to you for one second how my suffering is a part of something bigger. And when I orient my suffering in light of the bigger story, it actually brings me great joy. And that is what is happening here in these verses. Paul suspects that the church at Philippi has questions and concerns about his imprisonment and his sufferings. We would, uh, if, if I were to be thrown in jail tomorrow, I would hope that you would have some questions. Okay, what, what's going on here with you? So Paul, in this section, he sets out to answer their concerns and their questions. And here's what Paul, in, an, in a summary, in a nutshell, here's what he says. He says, when you look at my circumstances, you see prison, you see my upcoming death, you see my mission being shut down. But when I look at my circumstances, I see a bigger story. And listen, I'm, I see the same things you do. I see the suffering. I see the imprisonment. I'm not trying to glaze over that. That's all true, but there is more, toward the, more to the story. So we may say, and they may, said, may, may have said, Paul, why would God allow this to happen to you? Paul, why would God allow this to happen to you? And Paul basically says, hey, I'm not going to grumble against God. I've seen his faithfulness over and over and over again. I've seen his power in my circumstances sustaining me, working through me, even in the darkest times. Well, they say, well, but Paul, what about the gospel moving forward? Don't you realize you're kind of a big deal? Don't you realize you're the leader of this entire movement and now you are in prison? Paul, what about the gospel moving forward? And Paul's like, well... The gospel is doing just fine. In fact, the gospel might be advancing even more with me in prison than it was when I was free. 
Don't you know that the entire imperial guard, all these people I'm chained to, all the people in this Roman prison, all the people connected to those people, they now all know about Jesus and maybe they never would have otherwise. Well, then maybe the the next objection they would say is, but Paul, the church needs you. We need you. We need your wisdom and your guidance. We need you to teach us. And Paul says, verse 13, Oh, and by the way, the Christians all in the, in the area outside the prison, all the Christians in Rome, they have actually grown in their faith. They have been encouraged. They've been given boldness where they were fearful before because of my example in prison. Well, okay, Paul, but what about these people? Verse 14, what about these people who because you're in prison, they're taking advantage of you. They're trying to mock you. They're trying to undermine your ministry. And Paul says, well, that may be true, but even my enemies who are mocking me, who are trying to one-up me, it seems that God is even using them to advance his message. So in light of all of this that's going on in this bigger story, he concludes, I rejoice. I rejoice. And so here's the question for us. How should we respond to adversity and suffering and disappointment? How do we react when, as Shakespeare once said in Hamlet, we experience the slings and arrows of unfortunate fortune? Which feels like 2020, doesn't it? The slings and arrows of, un- of oh, excuse me, of outrageous fortune. It's three things I want to highlight from us from, from the way Paul experienced his suffering. The first thing that he says, or the first thing that we can draw out is that Paul had a right view of God, which led to confidence in the love of God. He had a right view of God, which led to a confidence in the love of God. We spoke last week how joy is found in knowing God. And one of the first temptations that we will face in a moment of trial or a moment of disappointment is that we will be tempted to doubt God's goodness and his love for us. And it's so easy in the middle of adversity for this thought to creep into our heads and into our hearts. God, come on. How could you? This again? I've done my best to follow you. I mean, I go to church. I go to community group. I serve. Why are you allowing this? And before we know it, it's like a weed planted in our heart that begins to spring up and we begin to believe, okay, God, do you actually care about me? God, do you have my good in mind? Or God, are you absent? Are you really out there? Perhaps I'm just on my own. But what we see in this passage is that the Apostle Paul has this extraordinary confidence in God's love and purpose, even in his imprisonment. Notice what's lacking in this passage. Paul doesn't complain. Paul doesn't grumble. He has no doubt about God's goodness, about God's presence in his life. Rather, he's confident that God, even in his suffering, 
is still working in him and God is still working through him. Paul believes that God is taking this bad situation and he's bringing something good out of it. Throughout all of Paul's experience as a Christian, and for those of you who have walked with Jesus for years and years, you've probably had the same experience. He's learned and he's developed a confidence in God's loving kindness toward him. And we see it all throughout Paul's writing. I want to give you a few examples of this. Look at, uh, with me at Romans 8.32. This is from the book of Romans. It will be on the screen. Notice Paul's logic here. Verse 32, he says, <clears throat> He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see what Paul is saying here? Notice his logic. Is it possible, he says, that the God who sent his son from heaven to earth, that the God who would send his son to die on the cross for you, is it possible that that God who would go to all of those, that, that length, would make that level of sacrifice in order for you to be forgiven, for you to know God, for you to love God, to be reconciled to God, if God would do all that, how is it possible that he would then abandon you in your moment of need? How is it possible that in your affliction, God is going to leave you, that God doesn't care? Because God showed you he cared at the cross. How could it that he would give his own son for you that he wouldn't care for you in your moment of need? Romans 5.10, let's look at one more. As Paul says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. All right, you see the logic here. When we were separated from God, he says, when we were enemies of God, Jesus came and he died for you. How much more, now that we have been adopted into God's family, you are a son or a daughter of the living God, you've been given an inheritance in Christ, how much more will God give to you through his life? So if while you were his enemy, his death brought you home, how much more, now that you're a son or a daughter of a king, will his life provide everything that you need? That he'll provide for you in your moment of trial or affliction. That he will sustain you. That he will be with you. So Paul, in his moment of trial, was able to step back and say, wait a minute. Perhaps there's more to the story here. Perhaps God's love, which I've learned to trust and learned to know and learned to experience... Perhaps he's doing something that I can't see in me and through me. I don't, maybe I don't know what it is. I don't understand why. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I can trust in God's goodness and his love. If God loved me enough to send Jesus to die for me, Paul will say, then I know that he still cares. I know that he has a plan and I am securely in his hand. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher from the last century, he said, he said this. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Think about that. 
Remember this, had any condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. God is not absent in our circumstances. God knows exactly where you're at. He, go, he knows exactly why you're there. And he's promised that in those moments, he is working in thousands of ways that you cannot see and you may never see. We may see two or three of them, but God is working in a thousand ways behind the scenes. Divine love has put us where we're at because God loves, God knows, God cares. Paul had a right view of God, but he also had a right view of self. And that right view of himself led to uh, what Tim Keller calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The second temptation that we will face in a moment of trial is actually the temptation of pride. And it's not a pride where we think, oh, I'm awesome and I'm better than everybody else. No, it's a pride that shifts attention from other good things to ourselves. Suffering can be all-consuming, so it's easy to constantly look inward to throw a pity party. All of our attention shifts from others to ourselves, our problems, our own disappointments, our own needs. And we've probably all been there, right? You're going through a difficult moment and all of a sudden, the rest of the world does not exist. The only thing that is important right now is me and my problem and my trials. And that is a form of pride. See, pride is not always thinking too much of yourself. Sometimes pride is just thinking of yourself too much. Or the flip side, as Lewis once said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, right? Sometimes pride is not you walking down the street with your, your, you know, your chest out, thinking about how much better you are than everybody else. Sometimes pride is you thinking of yourself too poorly. You're just thinking of yourself too much. You're the center of the universe, you're the center of the world, and no, no other good thing is worthy of your attention. Notice in this passage, how Paul, in his moment of of serious affliction and trial, notice how concerned he is with others. He's concerned about the Roman guards that are around him. He's concerned about his brothers and sisters in Rome. He's even rejoicing that the gospel message is going out through people who are trying to hurt him. He's got this concern for a world beyond himself in his suffering. He can experience joy in the midst of his trial because he realizes that he's not the main character in his story. He is not the center of his universe. He can, in a moment of trial, love and serve and care for others because he is experiencing the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Uh, in the book, Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis, he, he describes this type of humility in a person. And he said, listen, if you were ever to truly meet a humble person, you would not come away from that conversation thinking, man, that person thinks very lowly of themselves. Man, that person's got their head down. They're down in the, the dumps. They're very self-deprecating. Like if you, he said, if you were to meet a truly humble person, that would not be your takeaway, 
Rather, your takeaway would be how much that person seemed to care about you. How interested that person seemed to be in you because the essence of humility, like I said, is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And when you're thinking of yourself less, it opens the door wide open for you to begin to think about others. In fact, the person who keeps talking about how low they are and how despised they are and how much they're struggling, that person is just as self-obsessed as the person who's always talking about how great they are and how awesome they are and how much better they are than everyone else. Tim Keller sums this up really well, and I want to read you this quote. True humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. You see, there's an extraordinary freedom that we see that the Apostle Paul has in this, in this passage because he is not the center of his universe. When, when you put yourself at the center of your thoughts, all of your thoughts, and in a moment of trial, you completely look inward, it does not solve the problem. It just uh, compounds the problem, right? Because as you look inward, you look inward more and more and more and more. It's like you're going down a black hole and yourself is at the center. But Paul is saying, no, 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 I have Jesus at the center and that frees me up to actually look beyond myself to the good of others. Thirdly, he not only had a right view of God and not only did he have a right view of himself, but the Apostle Paul in his moment of trial had a right view of life. And that right view of life led to a joy of knowing the bigger story. And I'm not gonna go too deep this morning into this point because next week in the passage that we're gonna read, the Apostle Paul goes over this in detail. And that's next week's sermon. But very simply, Paul is going to say, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And in the passage that we read this morning, Paul keeps referring to Jesus. He keeps orienting his suffering in light of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. He says that he's in prison, quote, for Christ. He wants to encourage his brothers and sisters in Christ. He, re he rejoices in the message of Christ. Christ is the center of the story and he's orienting his life around the larger story of what Jesus is doing in the world. And really the third temptation that we can fall into in a moment of trial is that we begin to believe that the purpose of our lives is to be as comfortable as we can, to minimize suffering as much as we can, and to fulfill my dreams. Two kids, a comfortable 401k, a stable job. And what, you fill in the blank, whatever that is for you. And of course, there's nothing wrong with those things. Those are good things. But what Paul is able to do is say, actually, that is not, those are good things, but those aren't ultimate things. Those are good things, but those aren't the purpose for which I am living my life. And if our purpose, our primary purpose is comfort, then every trial becomes an existential threat to our life's purpose, doesn't it? Right? If our purpose in life is to be comfortable and to minimize suffering, then every trial we go through is an existential threat to our very being. 
But if like Paul, we're able to realize that our purpose is to bring glory to Christ, then every trial becomes an opportunity, not a threat. See, Paul orients his story around a bigger story. And what is that? What is that story, that, the narrative that Paul is talking about here? He calls it the gospel, which gospel in the New Testament just means good news, right? The New Testament writers are thinking, okay, how can we explain this extraordinary thing that has happened in Jesus, that Jesus' life and death and resurrection, how do we explain that, like what he's done for us? He said, what about good news? It's like good news on a bad day. That's exactly what it's like. And I, I saw somebody this week, they summarized the story of this good news this way. And I thought this was funny. So uh, this is what he said. God, I created you. They said, this is how you summarize the whole Bible. God, I created you so that I could love you. Us, get lost. Him, now I'm really going to love you. And that's it. It's that God made us to know him and be in a relationship with him. But because of our sin, we've been separated from him. But be, since we've been separated from him, God doubled down on his love for us and said, okay, then I'm going to go about the work of redeeming you and bringing you home. And not just you, but this entire broken world. It's not just you being reconciled to your heavenly father and coming home in a spiritual sense but it's that God is redeeming the whole of the broken world. And Paul says that is the good news. So when we put this all together in Paul's moment of affliction, we see that he has this great confidence in God's love. He had the freedom of self-forgetfulness but he also had the joy of living as a part of a bigger story. So my question for us this morning is, what temptation have you faced in 2020? Is it the temptation to doubt God's goodness and love? That's probably for some of you what 2020 has looked like. God, are you serious? How could you let this happen? Not only to our city, not only to the world, but to me. Some of you maybe lost loved ones, or you were sick in bed, or you've lost your job. God, how could you do this? Or maybe for others, it's been the temptation just to retreat into yourself, to put yourself back at the center of the universe. And you've just been going down this dark, black hole of pity, self-deprecation. It's like a cycle that you can't get out of. Or for you, has it been that you've maybe been tempted to believe that life is about your, your comfort and life is about minimizing your, your, your suffering and 2020 just blown that framework to bits and pieces. So our question this morning, obviously is a difficult, difficult one. We're talking about trials and afflictions and pain and nobody likes going through that. I'm not saying these are good things. Of course they not. they're not. The world that we live in was never meant to be this way. It's not the way God made it. But brokenness has entered the world and brokenness has entered our story. But in the moment of our pain and brokenness and suffering, if we're able to step back and look at the bigger picture, 
we see a God who has always been there and a God who proved himself on the cross of Jesus. We see a God that's gonna sustain us, a God that's gonna provide for us, a God that's gonna orient our little lives, this little section of humanity that we occupy, and he's going to, he's gonna write it into the bigger story of the universe. It's saying that your life here on planet Earth can serve the bigger story that I have been writing from the beginning, the story of redemption. And because Paul could zoom out and see that bigger perspective, he was able to have joy. My question for us this morning is, are we able to zoom out and see that? Are we able to zoom out, zoom out or have we been so preoccupied with our own circumstances that we've missed what God is doing around us? And if we've missed that, it's very difficult to live in the fullness of joy that Jesus has been providing for us. But if we see it, all of a sudden our circumstances are flipped and we see God working in all things for our good. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your love and your power and your grace. We're grateful that Jesus died for us. We're grateful that our stories can be rewritten And the, the focus of the story is not us. The focus of the story is not our pain. The focus of the story is not our trial. The focus of the story is Jesus' redemption of the entire world. And when we step back and when we see that, God, we, with the Apostle Paul in the first century, can rejoice. And we do that together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us at the Park Slope Community Church Podcast. For this and other messages, visit us online at parkslope.church. In the meantime, you can subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it on iTunes, and share with your friends on social media. Once again, thank you for joining us at the Park Slope Community Church Podcast. Thank you.